Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm broadcasting from the Naddle Valley, south of Keswick, on a wet and windy winter's day. And I'm speaking remotely to author and illustrator Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. It's lovely to be back with you. Shame we're on Zoom, but it's the best place at the current circumstances. Yes, that's right. We continue our Zoom odyssey. And today we've got something very, very special. Uh, We've got a bumper edition. And the reason for that is we're celebrating the life and the works of somebody who is a towering figure in the Lake District and who I know has played a very important role in your life as well, Mark. Who are we talking about today? Indeed, so Alfred Wainwright, who I met come November this year. Uh, It will be 50 years ago exactly that I met him. He was very dear to my heart and I learned a tremendous amount from him. And it is an anniversary year this, isn't it? Wainwright passed away 30 years ago this month? January. We're actually a month behind. And we've got two very special guests whose lives have been shaped by the great Fell Wanderer. Who are we speaking with today, Mark? Richard Else is a dedicated hill walker, but also very much involved with filmmaking. And he did a marvellous series of films with Eric Robson, talking with Wainwright. There's a whole string of wonderful films that reflect on Wainwright's life in the landscape setting, both in Scotland and on his journeys through the Lakeland Fells, the walks in limestone country, the coast-to-coast walk. Marvellous films that endeared him to the nation. And we'll also be talking with Chris Butterfield, who walked the Pennine Way, I believe, with his guide, and then got captivated by the magic and brilliance of his books and started collecting them. Nobody has got as comprehensive a collection of material associated with the great man himself. So Richard Else, who made headlines a few years back with the publication of his book, Wainwright Revealed, um, and Chris, who has a huge Facebook following, actually, for his archivist project of AW's work. And we're going to talk, Mark, quite widely about A.W. the man. We'll talk about the remarkable story of the printing of his pictorial guides. We'll take a walk from Honister Pass onto the summit of Haystacks and we'll close by trying to answer that question, was A.W. a genius? Let's go and meet Richard and Chris. Well, I'm really looking forward to spending what I hope will be a really good hour in your mutual company, Chris and Richard, to talk about somebody who matters a great deal to all of us, Alfred Wainwright. Richard, could you give us a little bit of a feel for both where you live now and your background in broadcasting? 
Well, thank you, Mark. For the last uh, 25 years or so, I've lived in the shadow of the Cairngorms. Before that, I had um, 13, 14 glorious years living at the top of Weirdale with about 10 million sheep and two other human beings. And when Wainwright used to visit our house, I think that suited him absolutely fine. I've got a degree originally in English. I've been a radio producer, a filmmaker. I've even been for a short time an academic but I guess what's driven the whole of my life is, is a really a love for the outdoors and the outdoors speaking to me in a way that's really quite fundamental. And I guess in short, I couldn't manage without it. No, I think most of our listeners will be in kilter with you on that. And of course, being up in the Cairngorms, what an amazing landscape to your midst. And Chris, it would be lovely to hear a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I'm originally a Bradford lad. I um, lived on the on the outskirts of the Yorkshire countryside and the South Pennines since the age of 15. I've been inspired by the landscape and I've been a big fan of the outdoors. You know, I was inspired to the Pennine Way in, in the early years. And my trade was um, a mechanical engineer. It was about eight years ago I moved to Scotland, just outside Edinburgh. It was a work-related move. First time working from my beloved Yorkshire. And it was sort of during the time in Scotland is when I sort of discovered my passion for Wainwright. Oh, we'll get to that in a moment. Richard, how did you discover Wainwright and his work? Well, I'm sure A.W. would be delighted because I could put it down to two very specific moments. One was two days before my 18th birthday on a geography fieldwork trip, staying in Keswick and seeing those beautiful handwritten books in in a shop window and although I was actually really attracted to them I went inside and bought a book of Wordsworth's poems and (laughs) the second occasion was on Christmas Eve in 1976 going into 77 driving down from Glasgow in a beaten up Hillman Imp in a blizzard staying with um my partner's cousins who live at Helton, just outside Ascombe in the Lake District, and being shown a copy of the Far Eastern Fells. And my first reaction was, what an incredibly beautiful piece of work it was. And my second reaction was, how on earth do you use it? And I just started, I spent most of that evening trying to navigate my way around to realise that you might only walk half a mile but you didn't go to the next page. You went to an entirely different chapter in the book. So it spent me quite, I spent quite a long time trying to fathom out how the books worked. And I think it's fair to say that I'd never quite seen anything like them before. And from that moment, I was totally hooked. Chris, what was your first impressions when you came upon them? It was on my 30th birthday when I decided to do the pen and wear I better do it sooner rather than later. And um, so I bought the Pen and Wear Companion. I did it over 19 days with my wife. And on every night to get information for the following day, I would read Wainwright's Guide. So this is my first sort of introduction to this magnificent handwritten masterpiece. And I was blown away by just the way it describes the journey, uh, the surroundings, the history, and the amazing detail in the drawing, the text. It was all written by hand, justified down each side. I've never seen anything like it. And little did I know, the best was yet to come, and that was the Lateland Guide. So I, I kind of started from the bottom with a Pennine Way Companion, and it got better. It contrasts with what uh, Richard felt 
when you have this mixing chapters together and trying to work that out, you will actually got a cohesive journey to follow. Now, I'd like to look at the genesis of the pictorial guys themselves. When Wainwright moved to Kendall and he had the idea of producing a guide to the town. Is this right, Chris? Wainwright had moved there in 1941. He got his feet under the table very quickly. And between 1942 and 1944, he produced some Kendall Holiday Week events for the holiday season during the war years to keep locals within Kendall and not to leave. He organised loads of events, sports events and Punch and Judy shows and dance and things like that. And that really pushed his profile high up in Kendall because it was an off-coming when he first arrived there. Wayman was very ambitious in those days and he wanted to put his name on the map. And it was during this period after 1942, after he'd done the first holiday week, that um, it was approached to do landscape commissions, a bit refused because Wainwright had bigger plans. He wanted to produce a guidebook around Kendall because he'd spent the year in Kendall becoming familiar, walking around and discovering his new home. And he loved Kendall. He really wanted to put on the map. So he wanted to produce the official handbook of Kendall. We all know Wainwright later in life when he was more reserved. But back in those days, he was telling his friend Lawrence, Aki Blackburn, a colleague of his, and he'd say, I'm a big noise here now. And he'd say, there'll be a statue of me when I'm through. So um, he'd do a lot of drawings around Kendall in the 1940s. He'd even approached a printer. So everything was in the works. You know what I mean? He'd really planned this out thoroughly. But there's no evidence that this book was ever produced. And then the sort of next bit of evidence is another letter to Lawrence in 1949. I think Wainwright was out on the fells and he was describing to Lawrence the beauty of it. He'd been on both fell and Grasmere and, and he was just blown away by the scenery. <laughs> and he did say to Lawrence that he was going to produce a Lakeland book. He never mentioned anything about a series of guides. He, he didn't mention the word guide. So maybe this was just a book on the Lake District or we don't really know. This was... Three years before I did start the first Lakeland Guide. So that's as kind of much as we know. From the evidence, we can see this Kendall book kind of got dropped and then it kind of evolved into doing a Lakeland book and then it sort of adapted into a series of seven. So we've kind of got a rough outline of what happened, but we don't know the exact thought process. It migrated in his mind. The whole thing grew and he realised actually there was so much detail that certainly you couldn't put it into one volume. And in fact, it needed to be in several volumes. So now I think what we ought to do is fast forward to the 9th of November, 1952, when he penned his very first page. What was it to? It was uh, Dove Crag. It was a cold winter's evening. That's when it started the Eastern Fells. On that day, it worked out that it would take him 13 years complete all seven guidebooks and I think he completed it within a week of his original schedule it didn't have a day off it was never ill and it didn't have a day off in 13 years that's all obsessive his garden was overgrown he didn't have any association with anybody even Ruth his poor wife a one-track mind just this 13-year guidebook odyssey now, let's turn to Richard, your book, Wainwright Revealed. You did what you might describe as a forensic study of his guides. Uh, what makes them so distinctive, do you feel? I think that's a really difficult question to answer because it's multifaceted. And just to pick up 
one thing that um, Chris said in that wonderful summary, of course, Wainwright wrote a whole number of pages, but wasn't happy with the layout and then destroyed them and went back and started again. And I think what makes the book so distinctive is an absolutely balmy idea. Why would you want to chronicle almost every square yard of Lakeland? Why not pick the best 50 tops or the best valleys or, or the best circular walks or whatever? And I had time on my hands. I moved up to the BBC in Newcastle in 1982. I was living in a caravan uh, with the Falklands War as a sort of distant background. And every night in this caravan, I actually looked at each book and treated it like a Shakespearean text. I went through it in a way that I don't think anybody had done before then. And you can trace a number of aspects of Wainwright's life through the book. So there's obviously a literary merit there. Um, they're obviously distinctive because, as we've talked about earlier, they're handwritten. But I started to sort of give them a detailed analysis. I mean, there's that vision, isn't there, right from the beginning. I personally, and I said this to AW, I didn't agree with the way he divided up the fells. Um, I think the Northwestern Fells book is, is quite interesting that all of a sudden one side of Borrowdale is in the central fells and the other side of the road is in the Northwestern Fells. And he humped and he grumped and he said it was about time we went for a little chef meal and we changed the subject. Um, <laughs> so, but he did have that vision. He had also a structural unity. Having thought about how he was going to do it, he didn't deviate from it one little bit. And I can't think of another author who's done that. Most times, if if you get somebody who writes a multi-volume work, you can see that work develop and, and the structure and so on begins to change. And then I think something I hinted at earlier is that absolute detail. And I've read many wonderful books, but they might be about the natural history, they might be about archaeology, they might be about landscape use. A.W. has that sort of polymath mind, and he wants to incorporate all of that. And one thing that slightly surprised me was not the research as such, because we know from reading the books how good that is, but I shut myself away in the National Library of Scotland for a number of weeks, uh, where they have a pretty good collection of guidebooks, many of which are totally forgotten. I'm not just talking about Baddeley and the obvious ones. And you could see how Wainwright must have had access, probably through the Kendall Library, to those books. And just as a sort of sidebar to that, after his death, I was given a number of A.W.'s books. And amongst the quite bizarre collection he had was Swiss mountain guides. Well, for a man who'd never actually set foot out of Britain... Um, I found that fascinating. So we obviously had that sense of history. There's also light and shade, isn't there? Like any good drama, there's that humour, there's a bit of mischief. And then there's what I call the strong authorial voice. This is not some bland civil servant writing a book. This is somebody who has, for better or worse, very strong and actually quite fixed opinions. And 
Curiously, I have never, perhaps I shouldn't say this, but I'm going to anyway, I have never used nor would dream of using his guides out on the fells. <laughs> you know, what you need on the fells is an ordnance survey map. Anything else is actually an encumbrance. But to read them before you go or afterwards, I think is fantastic. So I do think they're of genuine literary merit. I also think they're a milestone in that Nobody really had pulled these different genres together and welded them into guidebooks that make sense. And I did say to AW one day, I mean, we had our tiffs, so let, let me be clear about this. And I think we got on so well because, you know, I wouldn't let him get away with things. I was as bullshit as he was. But one day I said to him, I think these are probably the best guidebooks ever written about Lakeland. And I could see this iceberg just melt in front of, <laughs> front of me. And he looked at me and he said, um, do you think so? And I said, well, I'm only going to say this once, AW, but yeah, yes, I do. And I think that, to me, is his achievement. And in a funny way, he's not an artist. He, he's not just a writer in a traditional sense. He's something else. He's actually brought a whole set of things together, molded them into something. And I would normally not use the word unique, but I think this is one of the few instances that that, that is, is actually deserved. Now, we've heard from Richard what he thinks is so distinctive about the guides. It would be really interesting to hear Chris's perspective on this. What's the genius of them so far as you're concerned? Well, it's just the way he tamed the fells and he just formed these rugged giants into the friendly hills they always were through a simple thing like pen and ink. And like Richard was saying, Wainwright himself was such a melting pot of so many things. He was a philosopher, a poet, a romantic. You know, to describe the guide as a love letter to the fells, just so many facets of his character all comes out in these guides. Well, that's really interesting to hear the backstory of the guidebooks. But now I'd like to turn to Richard and your meeting in 1982 when you were producing Wainwright's Guide to the Lakeland Fells when you made your unexpected visit to Kendall Green. Well, there was a bit of a courtship before the first meeting. I knew that many people, including some of the most famous names in the media, had tried to get an interview with him. So I wrote to him and said... Um, well, actually, I'm not expecting to have an interview, but could we quote from your works? And I got a lovely typewritten reply. And we set about making a program without Wainwright, which I think was a very brave move on behalf of the BBC. But we spoke to people like Lakeland legend Harry Griffin. We spoke to Geoffrey Berry from Friends of Lakeland. And as the filming progressed, about halfway through the week, I got a message that A.W. had felt that we might be compiling a, an obituary and perhaps he didn't want other people to talk about him uh, without him having the opportunity to reply. Um, my view is that was total nonsense. Um, I think he decided all along that he was going to appear, but he didn't want to give himself away too early. Why do I think that? I suspect it's because it became clear to him through our correspondence that I was not the sort of person who normally worked in the media. And although I've done that now for 40 odd years, 
I really dislike the media. I don't like radio. I don't like television. But I do like communicating with people and passing messages around. So I got out the Land Rover. I walked up that famous drive, knocked on the door, and he peered down at me and he said, son, you've got a scoop. (laughs) And I thought I just looked at him and said, "Uh, yes, I think I have. But he was charming. And we went outside to film at the side of the house. And just as we were about to start the camera, he said, I think it should be like a scene from the Western. You move the camera down from the smoke coming out of my chimney. And then at the end, you see the smoke from my pipe. And finally, you reveal me. <laughs> and if you, if you look at that piece of film now, he is enjoying every single minute of it. You know, I think it was partly a good timing. I, I actually made the approach at the right time. But I think everybody else had actually said, we want an interview. I said, I don't want an interview. And that wasn't simply just reverse psychology. I thought, you know, we're going to have a great programme, even if he doesn't appear. Well, this first meeting led to a series of television films like Wainwright in Limestone Country and Wainwright on the Coast to Coast Walk. Could you tell us about working on those films and actually working with A.W.? Well, the main film started almost by accident. I'd made this first film, and as far as I was concerned at the time, that was the end of it. And in that first film, the presenter was a keen outdoors man called David Bean. But for the series, we thought we'd ask um, Eric Robson to present it. So my first problem was to go over to Kendall Green and explain that Eric wasn't really a media tart He was a Cumbrian farmer, which is kind of stretching the truth to an almost unbelievable degree. And A.W. was worried about being seen in Lakeland, but did like the idea of going to Penny Ghent. And I was very lucky in that the two camera people who filmed all of the programmes loved the offbeat and the unexpected. So A.W. walked to the top of Penny Ghent. We got to the top and he announced that Actually, uh, his film, which is the one the BBC were going to show, would actually involve Eric meeting him on the top, walking down, totally unaware of what was going on. That led to some phenomenally funny incidents where Eric would frame a question and A.W. would say, you can't ask me that, you don't know who I am yet. (laughs) But we did get some some really nice bits of conversation. We got a flavour of A.W. halfway down, uh, standing by one of the potholes where Eric went to look, and A.W. just calmly announced to the camera, well, if you fall in, we won't come looking for you. So I felt we were dealing with somebody then who who was very special. And indeed, one of the reviews we had for later programmes was somebody, a critic who wrote, the BBC must have a basement where it keeps eccentric people. Out of that basement, they've discovered a Wainwright. (laughs) But the funniest thing was at the end of the day, I was pretty pleased. It could have been a whole lot worse. The pictures were lovely. We had some great sound. Uh, it, it, It was a decent enough day, although pretty chilly. We got to the Land Rover and AEW turned to me and said, 
you've not filmed the end yet. And I, and I said, well, what do you mean, A.W.? Oh, he said, um, I'm with Eric, and you walk into the shop and say, Wainwright, it's you. How are you? At which Eric <laughs> would be very surprised and said, I had no idea. Wow, that is amazing. <laughs> now, Eric, Eric's not a bad actor, but I thought it would take a Hollywood star to be able to, to pull that one off. It was a high noon moment that didn't occur. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think AW's knowledge of television was from Westerns and Coronation Street. Um, he, in a funny way, he didn't quite ever understand filmmaking. He certainly didn't. He was quite open to me. He said, well, I don't know what you do, he said. Uh, the camera person holds the camera. That person holds the sound. The PA fetches the coffee and the sandwiches. So what do you do? And I said, well, the least I appear to do, the better it's going. Right. We did actually, over time, form a kind of relationship where he would, tr he would trust me to a certain extent. But, but as I wrote in the book, each day... I almost had to renegotiate re my relationship with him anew. The fact that a program or a series went out and did got rave reviews only had a marginal impact. Well, you've worked on the films and they're clearly proving a great success. You've built up a, an actual working relationship with Wainwright, which involved you in, of course, going to his home and also to his favourite eatery, which is the... Little Chef in Ings, which actually I visited with him on a, a couple of occasions myself. And A.W. had a particular delight in gooseberry pancakes. Every Friday, and it was always a Friday, Betty would say to me, you better take him for lunch. And it was silly asking him uh, what he wanted because it's always the same. But, but one day he, he just looked up and he said, Richard, I've got something really important to ask you. And I thought, oh, no, it's going to be... I mean, I prepared for these meetings as if I was sitting an exam. And I thought, oh, what, what on earth is he going to ask me now that I've not thought about? And he just looked and he said, gooseberries. And I thought, gooseberries? <laughs> gooseberries, he said. You never see them arrive. How do you think they get here? Do they come in the middle of the night? <laughs> And, I, and, and bizarrely, I did ask the then owners of the Little Chef chain if we could film there, and they said no. So, I mean, untold, free publicity, no wonder they, they kind of hit the dust. But, of course, Wainwright would be mortified. But I think it's, a, you know, I talk about him being on the autistic spectrum, almost certainly with Asperger's. That was kind of... You know, he needed that absolute routine. You know, if I said to him, as I sometimes did, well, shall we go somewhere else? No. Uh, we came back from a trip to London, first class, and I said to AW, well, they've got a restaurant car here. Shall we, you know, let, let's, let's make a day of it. No, I think I'd like the chip shop in Kendall. So at quarter to 11 at night, when the chips were limp, the peas were cold, and the fish was having a second life, we sat in my Land Rover with the pouring rain eating fish and chips because he needed that total security of things that he, he understood and felt, and I think this is probably a key phrase, felt he could control. Let's park the filming for a moment 
and I know our listeners will be riveted to know a good deal more about the origins of the publishing aspect of his books. He started locally. Can you lead us into that story then, Chris? Yeah, well, Wainwright wanted to finish the first guide that I started in 1952. Very early on, he wanted to self-publish for two reasons. Firstly, he didn't want any publisher to alter his layout. He wanted it to be printed exactly how he produced it. And also, it was concerned that maybe a publisher wouldn't like it. It would have hit him hard if it had gotten any negative feedback, having spent all that time on the book. So he decided to self-publish. Now, Henry Marshall was a Kendall librarian. He was also a bit of an entrepreneur as well. And I think he approached him first before he went to printers uh, to, to get his idea of, of the book and you know how to go about it. And the first thing that Henry did say was, I don't recommend you going down on the book as publisher and author wouldn't go down too well. So if you could choose someone else's name as the publisher, I think that would be the best way to go. And Wainwright quite liked uh, Henry's name. Uh, he didn't like his own name at all, and he suggested, could I possibly use your name as the publisher? Henry accepted, and they sort of discussed various places that would print the book, and Wainwright and Henry Marshall decided to go with Bateman and Hewitson, and they're a, print, a local printer in Kendall. Wainwright arranged a meeting with Sandy Hewitson, and he showed him these handwritten pages, and Sandy was absolutely blown away. He'd never seen anything like it. And he said he didn't think anyone had produced anything like this since the days of the monks in the medieval times. They were sort of working out how many copies to print, a good price to keep the cost low with 2,000 copies. Now, that come to about £900, £950. Now, Wainwright only had £35 to his name, but Sandy was so blown away by this amazing work, he decided to go ahead and print the books and he would pay back the debt as the sold. He had that much confidence in this uh, amazing book. Around this time, Bateman and Hewitson were bought out by Westmoreland Gazette, although they were still run under their... Bateman and name, they were too small to do anything like a book. So the Westmoreland Gazette were the perfect choice to produce the book. Now, Harry Firth was a general manager at the time. So there were, there were Harry Firth as a printer, uh, Wainwright as the author, and Henry Marshall as a publisher. All three of them were hands-on. They'd load up Harry Firth's van with the books, and Henry Marshall and Wainwright would all go out and try and sell the books. Uh, the very first shop that sold Wainwright's books was the, the post office in Patterdale. That was the very first shop that sold the books. And there were various other shops as well. And it wasn't a successful start. It was a very, very slow seller. It took months before they started to ramp up the sales. Well, the guidebooks had a slow start, but the sales picked up. Chris, he was a borough treasurer. He had a nine to five job. He was a working man. So he had a pattern of operating. Can you explain something of his routine? Well, despite having a day job as a treasurer in Kendall, he worked on the guides seven days a week, two days a week, Saturday and Sunday, uh, walking the fells with his notebook up and down the fells, each fell several times. On Monday to Friday, every single evening, he would write up the previous weekend's work. On occasion, he would be involved in meetings at the Kendall Town Hall and he wouldn't get out till 10 o'clock at night, maybe, but he would still go home and worked till midnight on the guides. So there wasn't one single day where it did not do some work on these pictorial guides. We gather that Henry Marshall was quite a significant figure as the publisher at the beginning, but that relationship, sadly, 
didn't end very well, I believe. Henry Marshall probably more work than anybody. He did most of the distribution from Kent here uh, with his family, did all the invoicing. He took the weight of everything that Wainwright was doing for very little money. Now, after book five, uh, Northern Fells, Wainwright, without informing Henry Marshall, decided to let the Westmoreland Gazette take over the publication of the guides. He approached Harry Firth privately, and Harry Firth wasn't going to turn it down. So in mid-1963, the Westmoreland Gazette become a new publisher for the guides. Possibly thought that the job was getting too big for Henry Marshall. After all, there were five guide books out now. A lot of books were going out, so it was a big job for Henry. So Wainwright privately decided to let the Westmoreland Gazette take over publishing rights. Henry Marshall, he was vocal to Wainwright about what happened, and he wrote a very sad letter. He kept professional, but you could sense the anger and the sadness that Wainwright had made this move without even letting him know, telling him. It felt like Wainwright didn't appreciate just how much Henry did for him. It laid out everything in this letter, and he could clearly see that Henry was heartbroken. And Wainwright never responded to this letter. It was definitely not Wainwright's finest hour. And sadly, a year later, in 1964, uh, Henry Marshall died, and I think you know, he would have been in sadness right to the very end. It really broke his heart. I think there's a very sad postscript to that because we'll never, as Chris said, be entirely sure what transpired between Wainwright and Henry Marshall. But I was in Kendall about three or four years ago and somebody came up to me in the street, asked who I was and said, well, I'm actually a relation of Henry Marshall. Do you know what happened? Because as I was growing up, Wainwright's name was banned in our household. We were told never to speak about him never to refer to him, but nobody would explain to me exactly what had happened. It's an intriguing thing that, isn't it? Uh, especially when publishing rights normally are held by the publisher, not by the author. Yes, and I think also it does show that other side of Wainwright, that he could be very cruel. And Andrew Nicholl from the Westmoreland Gazette did an enormous amount for Wainwright. And to be quite honest, I don't think he was treated in a way that I would say was particularly acceptable. So there was that other side to Wainwright. And I think we shouldn't just airbrush that out of history. Well, that's fascinating to reflect on the publishing and printing history. Let's talk about the burgeoning TV star. Somewhat reluctant. Could you talk us through that? Well, let's start at the end and work backwards. Um, by the time our last series, which was a coast-to-coast walk, went out, we were achieving an audience on BBC Two of about three million, which compared favourably with things that cost 10 or 100 times more than our programme. It was in the BBC Two top 10. And there is a thing that, that media types know about called the appreciation index. And that measures out of the people who watch the program, did they actually like it? And the two top hits from that appreciation index are things like Songs of Praise, which kind of makes sense. And the other one was Wainwright, who, who achieved astronomical figures. So, so how did that come about? I think the first series we did where we went to Penny Ghent, where we did a couple of programmes in the lakes, 
uh, we went to Teesdale and so on, kind of laid the ground and people began to understand that something was happening there. But I think the real breakthrough programme was about Scotland, partly because there's a unity in Scotland, partly because people didn't know about Wainwright's relationship with Scotland. And then you come to the really difficult bit. How do you define why something worked? Why was Monty Python's Flying Circus so successful and similar programmes just sank beneath the radar? And a phrase that was often used by critics was they called him a cult figure. And incidentally, whilst I was researching Wainwright Revealed and spending that time in the National Library in Scotland, I got out all the original newspaper reviews. And I was fascinated, A, by the quantity of them, B, by the fact that people who were quite famous, like the critic uh, Julian Barnes, now a well-known novelist, all of these people latched on to Wainwright. They latched on to that very bizarre relationship between Wainwright and Eric Robson. And I remember one memorable quote was that Eric followed Wainwright like a dog at heel. And whilst Eric was kind of a puppy scampering around, Wainwright just treated him with the contempt, and I quote here, the contempt that all television presenters deserve. So why did he become this cult figure? And the, here we enter really difficult territory, I think. It's about authenticity. And what, what do we mean by authenticity? And I think a lot of people on television can smell it and see it and hear it without necessarily knowing why. And the phrase I often use is when somebody comes out of the television screen and enters your front room, metaphorically speaking. And I think that's what A.W. did. And I think people identified with him. They identified with that absolute passion for landscape, for history, for social history, for all of those sort of things, I think they identified with the knowledge that, that he had. And I mean, one of the things I think it was so successful and became a cult series was that television is full of people who speak too much and don't have a lot to say. Here was a man who was the exact opposite. And I think, in fairness to Eric Robson, who's a brilliant interviewer, the better Eric's questions were, the worse A.W.'s answers were, because A.W. wanted to be in charge. He wanted to be in control. Um, he'd make Eric earn his money. We'd have the most phenomenal sort of conversations when the camera was off. He'd turn to me and say, so how much does Eric earn? And on one time, uh, as part of the BBC's periodic budget cuts, he took me to one side and he said, <clears throat> he said to me, do we need Eric? I'm sure I could do this. You know, I mean, if, if, if you say we're hard up, I mean, you know, um, why don't we just get rid of him? <laughs> so, <laughs> Muzzle the lapdog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Early on in the book, you talk about Wainwright being reluctant and not easy to open up, but it did sort of ease as time went on. Well, it certainly wasn't a linear progression, that's for sure. And Wainwright was not above telling different things to different people. 
And you'll see that in Hunter Davis's letters. He would write to me and say, I really enjoyed that. Somebody would write to him and say, well, I saw you in Scotland. You seem to be enjoying it. So he'd write back and say, no, I wasn't. Um, Wainwright had never expected to revisit these places again. With my wonderful Land Rover Defender and the permission of various landowners, we got to places that he never expected to see again. And I remember driving in Scotland, just around the corner from where I now live, up to Loch Eynick in the Cairngorms. And it's quite a difficult road. So we'd have Betty Wainwright screeching in the back saying, I think we're all going to die. And Wainwright in the front, puffing on his pipe saying, if I'd have known you could do this, Richard, I'd have never walked anywhere. <laughs> so I think I think we gave him something that he needed. And that was that new lease of life. And yes, you're absolutely right, Mark. He did become happier with the process, but it wasn't in, it wasn't a simple process. He could still have times when at the end of the day we got some lovely shots, but not necessarily a lot of conversation. Likewise, other days, we got a lot of conversation. In, and I could never quite work out what it was. I think if we accept he he was on the spectrum, then I think it, it's partly to do with how he viewed that day. Did he feel he was in control of it? Did he feel that it was going towards a plan that was probably only known to himself? And certainly he didn't want Eric taking any of the glamour away from him. So there are all sorts of complicated factors. It would be rather interesting now to skip back again. We've been through the films, magic of all that, to go back to the printing and what he did to the print industry of Kendall and his passion to support it. Chris, you could perhaps reflect on that for us a moment. Wainwright was all in support of keeping the Kendall printing industry going. His work saved the book printing department at the Westmore Gazette and 35 jobs as well. Now, during the 1970s, the Wainwright guides were only printed as a filling job. There was nothing to do. For some reason, during that decade, there was hardly any publicity. Wainwright's guides have been out a while now. There was nothing much in Cumbria magazine throughout that decade. And the Westmoreland Gazette was losing money rapidly. If the Gazette lost money for three consecutive years, the book printing department would have been closed down. That's it. They'd have been gone. It'd just been newspapers. That was it. Now, in 1982, when Andrew Nicholl took over as general manager and book publishing manager from Harry Firth when he was due to retire, Andrew was very reluctant to take the job on, but eventually he did. And he realised the only way to save the department, his priority was saving those 35 jobs. And the only way to think of doing it is obviously getting where I to do publicity. Now, after the first TV programme, it was 1983, Wainwright was talking about wanting a headquarters for animal rescue and he needed £75,000. Now, at that moment in time, Wainwright, he had £35,000 in the bank. So Andrew Nicholl said, well, how long are you expecting to live? Because there's no way he would make another £40,000 selling the guides. So Andrew Nicholl, he realised that the Gazette didn't own the copyrights. So Wainwright could have gone to another publisher the next day 
and there's nothing they could, could have done about it. And all the guides, the thousands of guides in the stores would have been as much used as toilet paper. So uh, the spoke to the Duke of Athol, uh, who was the chairman of the board of directors, and explained the situation that, you know, they could lose Wainwright and all these books were worth nothing. They took it seriously. All these years, no one really realised that Wainwright could walk away tomorrow. And they agreed to pay Wainwright the £40,000 he needed to build Capellan. So Andrew Nichol used to see Wainwright twice a week and he went down, I think it was a Friday, he went down and he sort of said, we can give you the money if we can buy the copyright, £40,000, you will have your money to build Capellan. Um, Wainwright and, and Betty was ecstatic, um, absolutely, you know, over the moon. So uh, Andrew Nichol held out the check in thumb and forefinger, and Wainwright held the other side of the check, uh, thumb and forefinger. And he said, right, you can have this money, but this money has come out of our year's tradings. If you agree to do this, if you agree to take the check, you have to uh, help us make this money back by doing publicity. Wherever TV, radio, magazine, newspapers. Uh, Wainwright didn't say a thing at the time. There were a pause for about three or four seconds, and then Andrew let go and Wainwright pulled the check away. Um, even though there was no word spoken, that was uh, his agreement that he would do something to help boost the sales of the books. So then Capellan was built in, I think, 1984. So that move and all publicity, the great TV programs that Richard produced, that helped save those 35 jobs at the Gazette and uh, kept the book printing going for many years to come. When the Coast to Coast TV series came out in 1989, the best-selling book was Southern Fells, and it had been the biggest-selling book since 1960 on its publication. But Richard did such a good job with the um, Coast to Coast programme, the Coast to Coast War book beat it hands down. That would become the biggest selling book of all time, all because of that TV series. So the publicity made a massive difference. Before the TV programme came out, the Gazette, they normally used to print 3,000 impressions at a time. But in sort of preparation for the publicity that I was getting from the BBC, they decided to print 10,000 Coast to Coast books and they worked around the clock 24-7 printing these guides. And it still wasn't enough. When that TV series aired, they still had to print another near enough 10,000. The success of the publicity um, just saved all the jobs and kept Wainwright's name going for many years to come. Well, that's given us some reflections on something of Kendall's printing history. But Wainwright the man, fine balance between public and private person. I wonder if you could talk us through that, Richard. Yeah, I mean, I think you don't write the guidebooks without expecting to become some sort of public figure. But I think he was very careful to actually, it was almost a facade. I mean, he was very, in some ways, quite shy and and didn't want that public adulation face to face. But I think it was also because he was frightened of the unknown, frightened of people, meeting people he didn't know. But at the same time, he wanted the adulation and he wanted to be well known. And I think the two shouldn't be seen as being intention, but as actually part of the same human being. And we're probably talking a minute or two about um, whether he was not or not on the 
autistic spectrum. But one of the things about being on the spectrum, particularly with something like Asperger's, is you can both be very confident and very insecure at the same time. You can also do something that gets a lot of public acclaim, like the seven guidebooks, and curiously think, well, if they got so much acclaim, perhaps they're not that good. Perhaps I I could always do better. So we're into a whole, without becoming sort of amateur psychologists, we're into quite difficult territory, I think. And I said earlier that I had to renegotiate my relationship with him each day from scratch. That wasn't because he was being deliberately awkward, but neither could he actually trust people. I think he found trust quite difficult. And Betty Wainwright would often have to work as an intermediary because she would need to say to him, look, Richard does actually understand this. Can you not just do what he wants? And at the same time, she'd have to say to me, can you cut him a bit of slack? So I don't think there is an easy, quick answer. I mean, there is a lack of empathy. I don't think he actually understood what empathy meant. I don't think he understood those social skills of perhaps going into a room, putting people at their ease, and then perhaps having a more serious conversation. Yeah, you mentioned it twice that uh, you felt that Wainwright was on the autistic spectrum. And that was one of the key themes that came out of your book. I've done quite a lot of work around autism, particularly Asperger's. And when I was writing the book, I was really cautious about whether I should mention this at all and kind of felt it would be a dereliction of duty if I didn't. One interesting discovery I made, I spoke to a lot of medics who were keen walkers and fans of Wainwright. And I very tentatively said, do you think, you know, by any chance, do you think he might be on on the spectrum? And without any hesitation, they all said, of course he was. And I was interested when the book came out that I didn't get people saying, why are you doing this? We disagree with you. I think for a lot of people, it made him more understandable. And I was very keen in the book, and it's something I believe passionately, is that these things cannot be separated out. You can't say, wouldn't it be nice to have Wainwright without this? And I think, and I'm pretty convinced personally, he was experiencing Asperger's throughout his life. And I can give you all sorts of reasons for that. But that, to me, was a gift. Without that, I don't think we'd have got the guidebooks If you then entertain that as a theory and you start to sort of backtrack with it, very interesting, Wainwright said um, he started walking because none of his friends wanted to. Most of us, if our friends didn't want to go walking, we'd at least some of the time do what they wanted to do and then try and introduce them to walking. But Wainwright's solution was just to take himself off by himself. And I think that detail... Uh, that we see in the guidebooks, that absolute necessity to chronicle every square yard of Upland Lakeland all points in that direction. And I think it would be hard to say he wasn't on the spectrum, because if you flip the coin over, what do you say? He was a grumpy, cantankerous, difficult, socially inadequate, 
ungrateful man. Well, that's not the AW I, I spent so much time with. Did you need thick skin, therefore, to work with AW? <laughs> um, I'm not particularly thick-skinned. I would get quite upset about things if they didn't work out. Thick-skinned in the sense that when you had setbacks sometimes, you just had to grin and bear it. I think being a producer and a director is probably the loneliest job of all. Uh, But to counteract that, there were times of absolute pure joy when we would go somewhere, particularly around the head of Horswater, which is one of my favourite places in the lakes, and in those days far, far less visited than it is today, to just see his joy, not about just being on the tops, but standing by the side of the water, talking about the old corpse road, just to be with him and share that time. I guess I, I would sum it up in this way. You couldn't relax for a moment you had to be on your own guard it was like it's like facing a fast bowler and you're not sure what's coming down towards you and how you're going to deal with it and I remember every evening um getting back to the hotel around about five o'clock just sinking into the bath pouring out a glass of wine and just thinking phew Every day had that sort of tension about it, even when the day had gone absolutely brilliantly. Most of our listeners will be aware of how A.W. was very attached to Haystacks and Innominate Tarn, of course. And uh, Richard, you did film A.W. going up Haystacks. Well, I think it's the most significant day's filming I've probably ever undertaken. And it's part of the first series where we went to Pennygen, we went to Teesdale, we went to the Howgill Fells. And about a third of the way through the series, I had become as adamant as Wainwright could be that we were going to go to Haystacks. And I didn't mention this to him. I began to talk to Betty and said, look, we'd be absolutely crazy not to go there. Getting him there was a difficult process. I drove up the old mine road in the Land Rover, which is a very interesting embracing drive. But we thought it would be interesting to put, uh, or easier to put AW with Eric in one of those tracked vehicles. We didn't realise that they had no suspension and we didn't realise that one of the tracks was going to come off. And in rapidly deteriorating weather, we made our way on foot to the summit and I was worried about AW but he had a steely determination he knew that short of going in a helicopter which I'd never considered and I would have thought of as unethical that we were going to do this the proper way so it was a hugely emotional day for everyone and we have to realize that this was going to be Wainwright's last visit to Haystacks with declining health and very poor eyesight I was interested that A.W. didn't, you know, Eric might offer him an arm or I would, and he kind of just brushed it aside. This was a day that meant something special to him. And in many ways, I think it's absolutely appropriate that he was chipping it down when we got to Innominate Tarn. It was appalling. And with today's video cameras, they'd stopped working. But with the old film cameras that were built like Meccano, they just carried on. <laughs> and... I remember many times during that day just sort of feeling tears coming to my eyes. I mean, this to me was 
a dream come true. You know, it had been the culmination of, of I actually changed jobs in the BBC to come to Newcastle with the view of making a series about Wainwright. And curiously enough, I never, ever doubted I'd do it, such as the arrogance of youth. <laughs> but I remember, you know, when we got to Inominate Tarn, the camera started running and he just spoke. And when we'd finished our filming, I said, come on, A.W., we need to get down. You're absolutely sodden, so am I. He said, I just want a few more moments. And I've taken many photographs over the years, taken them all around the world. But I think those images I took of A.W. by the side of Innominate Tarn are the thing I'd probably like to be remembered for. Oh, those are lovely memories there, Richard. Now let's fast forward with you, Chris, to that very emotional occasion. A few weeks after his death in 1991, when his ashes were carried to Innominate Tarn. Yeah, yes. It was several weeks after Wainwright passed away. It was a beautiful day, really sunny day. And it was actually um, a route. Uh, if you get the Western Fells book, it was Haystack 7, two-mile walk from Honister. And they set up about six in the morning. It was a, a, quite a bright day. There was um, Betty, there were Percy Duff and Mike and Paul, Percy's sons. There were no one around whatsoever. They had the journey to themselves all the way to the summit. Paul carried Wainwright for Betty in like a brown urn. It took a couple of hours to get to the top, to the town. And they spent the entire day there just exploring all the nuts and crannies and just sat and had lunch on the rocks by the town. Well, that was fascinating. Uh, Haystacks means an enormous amount to many of us fell walkers, me particularly, I, I love it dearly. And uh, the connection with AW will be enduring that it belongs to him. We all have our special places. I think we now move to Quickfires. And Chris, which is your favourite AW publication? It would have to be Westmoreland Heritage from 1975. It's an absolute masterpiece. It was to capture the Westmoreland County when the county lines changed in 1974 and where I captured it beautifully for the actual residents of Westmoreland. How I managed it, I do not know. Hundreds of pages of this amazing drawings, great descriptions. It was just an absolute masterpiece, and that is my favourite book. It was a two-part thing because Betty was involved with the research, I understood. Uh, which was your favourite pictorial guide? Favourite pictorial guide would have to be Northwestern Fells. What was your favourite Fell chapter? Fell chapter, Helvellyn. Why particularly Helvellyn? He just captured it in that particular chapter just for me perfectly and the way I felt about it. And it's one of my favourite mountains. And if you were to pick your favourite Fell, would that be Helvellyn as well? The actual favourite Fell, which uh, just pips it to the post, is Castle Crag. It's the smallest fell in the guides, which makes the book six my favourite book. And I've spent many days up there. You know, it's the only fell that I've climbed and just spent eight hours on the summit, just admiring the view and just taking it all in. And you still don't want to climb down at the end of the day. You can stay there forever. And uh, I've never felt that on any of the mountain apart from Castle Crag. Wainwright put it in the, the most beautiful square mile. Now, you're a great collector of AW's material. Now, have you had a house fire you'd have to go and grab one thing what would it be oh that's a very tough one there's so many fabulous uh, books i've got but it would have to be the fell walking with the camera manuscript 
It was the very last manuscript he produced for the Westmoreland Gazette. From what I gather, there's only two original manuscripts in private hands in the world, and I've got one of them, so that would have to be the one that I saved. <laughs> there's a man that treasures Wainwright in every dimension. Richard, which was your favourite AW publication? Well, my favourite one is actually a book he didn't write. It's um, Scotland. And I think if only in his prime he'd actually managed to do a set of guides to Scotland, that would have been brilliant. Um, The book that the BBC and Michael Joseph did, wonderful photographs by Derry Brabs, but really a poor substitute for a real Wainwright. And I think also with AW, he couldn't tame Scotland. There was too much of it. If it was a book that he did publish, well, coast to coast, because the route was his own creation. Um, which was your favourite pictorial guide? Uh, for very personal reasons, I think the Far Eastern Fells. Um, I began to explore the Lake District at a time when that area was very rarely visited. In winter, I would be the only car in the car park at the bottom of Horse Water, ma- making my way up the ridge to High Street. So that definitely gets my vote. A very good choice indeed. And a particular favourite chapter in his series? Well, I think um, from the same book, probably Harterfell, page seven, it's quintessential Wainwright. It's a wonderful topographical drawing. It's got great description of the abandoned quarry cottages. And it just is almost, to me, one of the most perfect pages. Magic, absolutely. What is your favourite fell from the pictorial guides? Partly because I did a wonderful ascent many years ago would be U Barrow in the Western Fells from Overbeck Bridge. I mean, it's a wonderful route up, very airy, great views, and every single step is a pure joy. Well, it's been absolutely wonderful to go down memories lane with a pair of you. Chris and Richard, you've been absolute stars. And you've contributed so much to the memory of Wainwright now in this podcast, but in your actual work, and Richard with your films, Chris with your archiving. But this is a moment where I want to ask you one final question. Perhaps I'll address this to Chris first. Was A.W. a genius? Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, an absolute genius. I don't think in our lifetimes no one's ever going to achieve what Wainwright's achieved regarding the guidebooks. And might I pose the same question to you, Richard. Was A.W. a genius? Well, Mark, I spent some of my time as a university professor. And what I used to say to students when we asked me a tricky question like that, I would simply look at them and say, what do you think? Nothing wrong, Mark, when spending a good hour and a bit talking about AW. And uh, what a load of fantastic memories there from Richard and some great insights from Chris. Oh, well, absolute gold dust I found all that. So much of it I felt I knew, but hearing it from Richard and from Chris, it matters more once you hear it like that. You know it's coming from the heart from those two. Yeah, absolutely. 
And of course, I mean, you didn't get as much chance as you might have liked, Mark, to talk about your own memories of him. But I wonder if there's one particular memory that you have of of him as a man. What would that be? Uh, he was very encouraging. He loved to show me his technique, his pen and ink technique. And I loved watching him work at his desk. And I don't think too many people ever saw that. I feel very close to his pen almost, as it were. I have a special reverence to handling of a crow quill as a result of witnessing him handle it. I have other influences, pen and ink wise, you develop a love of the whole medium. But actually witnessing a genius working in his element, that really was magical. And I just love being with him. Did you have any gooseberry pancakes at the Little Chef with him? And no, I had apple pie pancakes. <laughs> Did you? Right. There we go. Good, good memory. Right, we should mention two important things um, from our guests. Firstly, Richard's book, Wainwright Revealed, on Mountain Media. And a great read it is. I read it for the second time preparing for this podcast, and um, it's, it's a lovely book, really. And we should also mention... Chris's fantastic Facebook page, Alfred Wainwright Books and Memorabilia, with all kinds of um, interesting nuggets of information from Chris's ever-expanding collection. Uh, Some housekeeping, our usual housekeeping. We are on episode number 49. You can find all previous 48 episodes at www.countrystride.co.uk. And one thing actually to say as well, Mark, on this particular edition is that Both Richard and Chris have sent some lovely photos, Richard, of AW when they were working together. So there's some really nice pictures up on the page associated with this particular podcast episode. Uh, We're on social, aren't we, Mark? Oh, yes. Country's tried one. Uh, Facebook and Twitter at the moment. And just like AW, we are very shy, reluctant personalities, but uh, we always welcome followers. So um, please do join us there. And next episode, Mark, it's the Big Five O, and we've got something special planned. Oh, I think we have. Uh, do we reveal? I don't know, do we? Well, we're going more youthful, let's say that. We're going to do something we've not done yet. We're going to give the microphone to a collection of Cumbrian young people and hear from them. Um, we should say, if you like the podcast, the best thing you can possibly do to say thanks is to give us a five-star rating on your podcast provider. And for now, from us, it's goodbye. And I think all we need to do, Mark, is to ponder, where do those gooseberries come from? <laughs> <laughs>